Hey friends, welcome to the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. Glad to be with you for another episode of the show. Hope you're doing very well, and I hope that you are ready to deal with a complex issue with me today, one that maybe you haven't had to deal with before. If you are a pastor or any kind of teacher with biblical truth, I guarantee that you will eventually have to deal with this. But even if you're not a formal teacher of Scripture, but you're just somebody that has conversations with other people, or you're asked particular questions about the Bible, you will have to deal with this as well. Now, what I'm talking about is having the translation blues. What I mean by that is dealing with a particular word in our English language that might not translate depending on which version of the Bible we're using. Now, if you're still scratching your head trying to figure out what I'm referring to here, what I'm talking about is dealing with how one translation over against another are going to differ at times in what they say. Sometimes that difference can seem to be pretty minor. Other times, it can be something that catches us by surprise, throws us off guard entirely. That happened to me one time. Actually, it happened when I just got done preaching a passage of Scripture. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon. I finished the sermon. I was in the front of the church having the conversations with people as they're kind of ushering out of the auditorium and going on about their day. And one gentleman came up to me and asked me a question about the passage. I was using my ESV Bible, so that's the translation that I was using as I was preaching. And he asked me a question about a certain phrase in there that I was really emphasizing throughout the sermon at at different points. And his question was, why does his translation say something different? And so I asked, well, what does your translation say? And he went on to read it, and at that moment, I had to confess to him that I did not have an answer. And the reason that I didn't have an answer is because when I was preparing for the sermon, I didn't take the time to read other translations and see whether or not my passage in the ESV was different from other passages in other translations. Well, he was you know, kind enough to realize that I was being sincere, and I told him that I would go and study up on it and then give him an answer later, and of course I did that, and he was appreciative of, of it. But I learned a hard lesson at that time uh, to be very careful not to make too much of a particular English word or phrase and not to make too much of one translation over against another, especially if I hadn't taken the time to compare those translations to decide which one I thought was a more fair reading of the text. So what I want to do is help you wrestle with that a little bit. Now maybe, again, the scenario is not the exact same for you as it was for me, Maybe this scenario doesn't happen for you in the way that it did for me where you just got done preaching a sermon, or you're getting ready to preach a sermon soon and you're trying to study your passage. 
But maybe it's happened if you have quoted a certain Bible verse over and over again, if you've put it on social media, or if you've used a certain Bible verse in order to defend your view on whatever doctrine that you're talking about. And then you come to find out that that one English word or that one phrase that you've been really hammering down on only occurs in one translation compared to the dozens of others that it doesn't occur in. This can be a humbling experience for us if we're willing uh, to kind of call ourselves out. But of course, I want to save you from the trouble of ever getting to that point. I want to help you uh, in your interaction with the Bible to be a little bit more well-versed, or at least use this example of mine as a way to kind of guide your future Bible studies. Now, this can happen to us uh, very easily, and the reason for that is because most of us, the average person, doesn't know Greek or Hebrew. Now, I've made several videos and, and previous episodes talking about Bible translations and all of the things that go into that. I'll put a link in the description of the video version of this, and so you can go back and, and watch that. If you haven't already, I don't want to talk about all of the fine points of translations, but I do want to kind of remind us that since we don't know Greek and Hebrew, we're really depending on the academic work of others who have brought the Bible into our own language from its original languages in the Old and New Testament. And that means that we don't always have the benefit of kind of a firsthand experience with the different manuscripts that are used, the different Bible translations that use those different manuscripts. And maybe you're lucky enough to have a Bible that might have a note in a certain passage that differs in the various manuscripts, and you at least know about the difference of a word or of a phrase. But most of our Bibles don't even have that, especially if we're just using kind of a basic Bible. So, we're at a disadvantage because unless we take the initiative to do these kind of things ourselves, we can quickly find ourselves having to backtrack only after uh, this error of ours has occurred. Now, you might be thinking, this is really well beyond my own personal experience because you know, I'm not going to go to the trouble of trying to do all of this work just to figure out what a certain translation says. But I want to encourage you that you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a uh, a teacher of Scripture. You don't have to be a Bible college or seminary student to care about this. You only have to care about the truth. And if you care about the truth, then you need to do as much as you can to follow that command of Scripture to rightly handle the word of truth. And we need to be able to make sense of genres. We need to be able to make sense of figures of speech, of symbolism. And especially in the more technical sense, we need to at least be able to rightly handle and make sense of the different variations that come in manuscripts and translations. Hopefully this will at least whet your appetite to this whole idea, uh, because it's really after caring about what God said, and caring about how we articulate that in the English language in the various translations. Now, we may come to respect a certain translation more as a result of this kind of study. We also might learn to maybe steer uh, a little bit more clearly away from other translations uh, when we start to compare them to others. 
So there's a lot of examples of this kind of thing. And although most of the time the nuances are, are very minor, I want to at least give you the example that I had to deal with firsthand, of course, after the fact, and, and show you the variation. So uh, the passage of scripture that I was dealing with is in Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, this introduction of Jeremiah is really strong because what the Lord does before he goes into his very long indictment of Israel is he sets the stage through the prophet Jeremiah of his covenantal relationship with Israel. He really starts to uh, expand that idea in the beginning of chapter 2, uh, which reads this in the first uh, two verses. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And then the first half of verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Now, this is a really delightful way of talking about the relationship between God and his people as one of a groom with his bride. He's leading her through the wilderness. She is uh, devoted to him wholeheartedly in faithfulness. Uh, she is holy unto the Lord. She's set apart from the rest of the nations across the face of the earth. Uh, she is his prized possession. And then things quickly take a turn uh, for the worse. So I'll trans transition a little bit here to the passage that I actually was dealing with, and that was still in chapter 2. Uh, but the sermon that I was preaching was in verses 20 through 25. And the uh, nuance here happens in verse 20, where the Lord says this, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Now, the strong language there is a significant difference uh, from the devoted bride that we just heard about at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, where the Lord is reflecting on that initial relationship between himself and his people. Uh, a devoted, faithful bride is now called a whore, a prostitute. The older translation is a harlot. Of course, that is the exact opposite of a faithful bride, a devout bride versus an unfaithful spouse here. Um, and the, the language is even more strong because it says that this uh, act of prostituting themselves to all the other nations was just a kind of glaring act of rebellion against God. It wasn't something that happened uh, off in a dark corner somewhere, as it were, uh, with the imagery, but it's something that happened on every high hill and under every green tree. Uh, so this unfaithfulness was uh, all over the place, and it was out in broad daylight. And so the imagery there is very, very strong uh, to communicate what exactly this covenant unfaithfulness looked like uh, from the perspective of the Lord, and how his people had turned their backs against him, not to be in a neutral position, but in favor of all the other gods, of all the other nations uh, around them. 
So a very strong indictment, and that is just the, the tip of the iceberg for all the rest of the book of Jeremiah. But in verse 20, it says, Long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. There's that phrase that got me into trouble, I will not serve. Now, what I just read to you was from the ESV, and I do think that it's a fair handling of the text. I think it's a uh, it's a reading of the text that works, that makes sense, that is faithful, at least in my estimation, from the original Hebrew into English. But, but the man's question after that sermon was based on what the text says in the King James Version and other versions, but for just the sake of Uh, keeping things brief here, I'm just going to read what the King James Version says in that same verse. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou said, I will not transgress. Now, there's the difference between those two phrases. The ESV says, I will not serve. The King James Version says, I will not transgress. Now, the difference could have something to do with just how we might translate that Hebrew phrase into English. So there's, you know, a little bit of uh, kind of dynamic work that's happening. How would you say that in the English language? Well, uh, you could argue that both of those work, and maybe the difference seems very subtle at this point. But the problem goes a little bit deeper. If you were to read commentaries that are treating this passage, uh, you'll find that they talk about other uh, manuscripts that have a variation here between how it's said, and that is what influences our translations today as to how they'll take that verse, whether they will say, I will not serve like the ESV does, or I will not transgress like the King James Version does. Now, again, I don't have a huge issue with either one of those. I think they both work. But the problem is me, an English-speaking Christian, preaching from an English translation, made a big deal about that theme, I will not serve. The only reason that that matters is because it doesn't say that in all of the other translations. And that was the point that the man made to me after Uh, the sermon, that he was confused, why is it different in his version, and how much does that influence the point that I was making? So, in the ESV, here's, here's where the differences can really be seen. In the ESV, the text has a reading that works in this way. God has rescued his people out of Egypt. Remember, he takes them into the wilderness land on the way to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And during that time, he introduces to them the law, especially in the Ten Commandments. He presents that to them as stipulations of what it looks like to live in fellowship with God in this covenant that has been made between the two parties, between God and his people. The motivation for God rescuing his people out of Egypt, if you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh, uh, uh, through the, the word of God, uh, Moses says, let my people go that they may serve me. 
So there is the kind of big idea that I was focusing on in the sermon, is that the whole idea of God rescuing his people, of God bringing them out of bondage, uh, was so that they would serve him. They would no longer serve Egypt. They wouldn't serve the gods of Egypt, but instead they would be loyal and faithful to him. They would serve him. So the expectation and the necessary consequence of them being thankful people for the salvation that God offered to them and brought to fruition for them was to respond by way of faithful service. This is the same idea in the New Testament where we think about the theology of salvation. Uh, We're not saved because of our works, but we're saved in order to produce good works. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2 uh, that we have been uh, brought from a state of spiritual death to and, and raised to new life in Christ uh, because of his grace, not because of our works, but he did so in order that we might walk in these good works that God has prepared for us. Think of Romans chapter 12, after Paul has just gotten done with his very long illustration of what salvation is, uh, he says that we're supposed to present our bodies as living sacrifices, offering acceptable service to God, offering pleasing worship unto God. So that response of serving God is a gesture of thankfulness for the fact that he saved us. That's the same idea in Jeremiah 2. The point that I was making in the sermon was that it was a grave disrespect to God for them as well as for us today when we take our salvation for granted and refuse to serve him when that was the whole idea. Well, that was baked into the recipe, if you will, of our salvation is that we would be new creatures and we would serve him out of love, out of affection in that covenantal relationship that God has established with us. Now, when you get to the King James Version, it captures somewhat of the same idea, but the phrase, instead of saying, I will not serve, was, I will not transgress. Now, that is a different kind of promise. It's it's of the same nature, but it's a different type, because in the first instance, it's, I will not serve. It's, it's a slap in the face, if you will. It's a refusal uh, to return love to God after he has initiated love towards us. In this one, King James Version, it's opposite. It's making a vow. It's making a promise to God in a positive sense that we understand all of the ramifications of our salvation. And we're saying, uh, as a supposedly loyal spouse, I will not transgress. You can count on me. I will be your right-hand man, as it were. We're making a vow, we're making a promise to God uh, that we will do as we should as his people. So in the ESV, it's a slap in the face. In the King James Version, it's a promise that is empty, because the very next verses uh, tell us that no sooner had Israel made that promise than they turned 
to serve all the other gods. They literally looked God in the face and said, I will not transgress. Then they turned around and did a whole lot of transgressing. In the ESV, it's the whiny, ungrateful person that says, yeah, I understand all that you've done for me, but I refuse to serve you. Uh, I think that I'm going to take my chances elsewhere and go on and worship all of these other gods and be an unfaithful spouse in that way. So you understand that both of them communicate the same idea, but the subtlety is worth evaluating. Sometimes passages don't quite bring that full sense of the differences between one translation or another in a way that that does justice all the way across the board. Part of that has to do with our willingness to utilize different translations, because what that does is it gives us a much more complete picture of what's being said, because in those two variations, the imagery is different, the attitude is different, and the significance of the disobedience is different. Communicate really the same idea at the end of the day, but again, it's enough of a nuance to where we're not doing full justice to the text if we just omit it altogether. We, we become satisfied with kind of a bare surface level reading. That might work for a podcast that's just called Bible reading. But of course, you know, that doesn't work for a bod- podcast that's called Better Bible Reading. And it doesn't work if you want to be a better Bible reader, because I'm trying to help you go the next step uh, from that surface level experience. Now, you don't have to do a whole lot of digging to, to do this kind of thing. You just have to be willing to look a little bit beyond your initial interaction with the Bible in one particular translation. It would have been great if I was willing to do that on the front end of that sermon. Because I could have brought that up in about two or three minutes worth of time during the sermon and talked about the different angles that are at work there. And I think that he would have been more benefited as a listener in the congregation as a result, instead of leaving him with more questions than what he came in with. And so that's kind of the idea that I want to help you see. There's one more example that I want to look at. This one came up. You would hope that I've learned my lesson by now, but this one actually came up this past Sunday when I was teaching a, an adult Sunday school class, and I read from 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection uh, and the final judgment, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's making a huge deal about how necessary the resurrection is, and in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, the text says this in the ESV. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You get to the King James Version. Here we are. Comparing the ESV and the King James yet again. But here's what the King James Version says. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy O grave, where is thy victory? Again, the difference here is subtle. This time, it's not even an entire phrase. It's just one word. You'll notice that the ESV translates the idea of a perishable body. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. King James, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality. The difference is subtle, but I read the ESV and proceeded to uh, make the the rest of my uh, points in the class that I was teaching. Uh, one of the gentlemen in our church uh, raised his hand and he said, you know, I really prefer the King James Version because it captures more of how sin is the issue that's being dealt with here, not just our body's inability to live forever. I really liked that. I really appreciated it. And I told him, you know, I actually do prefer what the King James says in this sense because really in the ESV, uh, something that is perishable just kind of has the idea of eventually going bad, right? We know that we can load up our food uh, with a whole lot of preservatives uh, in order to make it last longer. Uh, but if you buy something that's like preservative free and you're trying to have more of a kind of wholesome experience uh, of eating food, uh, you don't want it to be loaded with all kinds of crazy stuff that you don't know how to pronounce. You just want to eat the real thing in its raw form. Well, then you know that it doesn't last very long. It perishes quicker because it doesn't have those preservative agents working in it to kind of keep uh, that chemical breakdown from happening. And so it's not really a matter of good or evil. It's just a matter of uh, something having a shelf life. But that's kind of the problem is that in the ESV, that's already being said in that next phrase. When the perishable puts on imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality. Well, that's the same idea. All we're talking about is the shelf life of this body of dust. And we need it to transition to that phase of immortality. And that's what the resurrection is all about. We're given um, a body that does live forever, that is immortal. But the idea behind that is not only that we have a body that is perishable, but, King James Version, we have a body that is corruptible. That really captures more of the idea of the problem of sin. It's not just that our bodies decay. It's that the whole reasoning behind that is sin. It's not just the death itself that has to be dealt with as a universal experience. It's the sin that must be dealt with as a universal experience. Now, of course, if you read 1 Corinthians 15 in its entirety, even in the ESV, uh, that idea of dealing with sin is all over the place in the chapter. But at least in, in terms of that verse, I like the King James better because it captures both of those ideas. And honestly, corruption uh, speaks of the decay of the heart, not just the decay of the body, whereas perishable uh, can kind of be too much of a broad explanation where we're not thinking about 
sin so much, we're just thinking of another way to talk about a mortal body versus an immortal body. So I thought that point was really good. And again, just another example of how we need to be utilizing various translations. Whether or not you agree with one when they differ versus the other one is not necessarily what I'm trying to get you to think about. I'm trying to get you to think about whether they differ or not, and then make your judgment based on your own reading of the context and what seems to do the most justice to the big idea that's being communicated. In this sense, I think it's what the King James says. But again, just two examples, one in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, one in the New in 1 Corinthians. But these little uh, instances pop up a lot more than we might realize, uh, and it's not defined holes in the Bible because both of the readings work, both of them are faithful translations, but to communicate the full idea, or to at least grasp the full idea, does require us to do a little bit of digging, which again is as simple as using more than one translation. So don't make too much of an English word in the Bible. Make sure that you're taking the necessary precautions to do a little bit of comparing and contrasting, and so that you're a more faithful and better Bible reader as a result. Well, I hope this episode was helpful for you, and I do hope that it gets your wheels spinning a little bit in a positive direction. Would love to hear if you have had any uh, instances like this, if you've had any kind of somewhat embarrassing moments where you've had to retract your statements or at least go back and provide a a little bit more of a fuller explanation like me, uh, I'd love to hear about it. But either way, thank you so much for being with me for another episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and I will see all of you on another episode real soon. Take care.